Microphone. Now we're live. <clears throat> Do you phrase or locate phrases to chill? We're live. It happened. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Uh, thanks, Astro B. Uh, Astro B just mentioned in the chat that he loves the weekly newsletter, which is awesome. Thank you so much. I it's uh, it's good actually. It's a lot of fun. I was doing my newsletter like when I first started Universe Today back twenty years ago. I you know all we had was email, so I maintained an email newsletter, and then I uh, let robots handle it, and it started to really suck, and it had, had a lot of ads in it, and so about. Four months ago or so, I decided I was going to do an all-new version of the newsletter. I was going to write it all by hand, you know, just like from my own brain and uh, and sort of pull together all kinds of news sources. So I'm having a good time with it. It takes a little more time for sure than letting a robot do it, but it's, uh, yeah, it's really good. Um, so go to universetoday.com slash newsletter and, uh, and sign up. Well, hey, everyone, I'm going to say hi to a bunch of people because that's what happens when you show up right on time. I'm going to say hi to so so here's how this works. For those of you who have never done this in the chat, when we start within the first five minutes or so, say hi, and then I will say hi to all of the people who are there. So it's, for those of you who have never done this, um, we'll I'll give you a, uh, a chance to uh, to say hi right now. So for those of you who are expecting uh, Dr. Paul Sutter, he is traveling and he had a uh, something else come up, so he wasn't able to join me. So it's just going to be me and all of you this week. Um, so apologies in advance, but he promises, promises, promises he'll be back for June the 4th. So I'll put that into the calendar. Uh, yeah, so other guests, I would be glad to take, uh, let's see. Any suggestions that you've got for guests to do this? I like, and I would love to know what you'd prefer, right? Do you want to just do, like, do you like it when I do the QA and it's just me? And do you also like the time, obviously, when it's cool, when I have like Isaac Arthur or something like that? So um, let me know. All right. Now, once you've had a chance to say hello, so in the future, just remember, you're going to say hi in the first five minutes so that I can see the names. That's how this works. So hi to Astro B and uh, Astro Nation, Avi Scott and Flower, Bloody Bobby, Gamecat X, Campbell Argyle, Chappers 97, Clenched Rectum. <laughs> Keep saying that, Clenched Rectum, Rectum, Crushnut, Darth Vader, Da Great, Debbie Nully, Dr. Machine, Work One, Eric Charland, F.S. Mura, George Lancaster, Ghost World, Grant Lanning, Gravel Pit, Jesse Back. Jim Becker, John Hussey, John Victor Quadlibet, Larry Beckham, Lawrence Joseph, Layer Fuchs, Maple Flavor, Matt Minter, Multi Dead Eye, Nancy Graziano, Nuno Fernandez, Ocean McIntyre, Paranor 001, Peter Hu, a lot of people here today. Philip Bordelau, Phoenix Torres, hey Phoenix, uh, Ryan Taylor, Scott Bragdon, Sergio Botero, hey Sergio. Spade Ninja 9, Steve Hunt, Stephen McGinnis, Stooniverse, that's awesome. Teppen Sani, Tesla Ranger, Tyler Hamlin, Uncle Bill Druin, Vesa Taminen, Vladimir Dimitrov, Willis, Wickis, Vandemurw, man, you have to help me with that one, and uh, Zeffen Zeffen. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Uh, oh, you know what? Phoenix, I'm going to. Oh, maybe I can't. All right, never mind. 
so uh, some people in the chat here I want to just sort of pick out here. Uh, Sergio Botero is uh, an amazing artist. He's been doing a lot of the artwork for um, for Isaac Arthur's channel, and he actually did a bunch of custom stuff for when Isaac and I did a did a video, and he did the these really cool like spaceships and sort of visualized what it would look like to um to mine helium and hydrogen from the gas planets and stuff amazing so check out his stuff it's awesome um lawrence joseph this is so inclusive there you go hey lawrence how's it going uh all right so you got some suggestions paul yes paul gister yes I, i'm gonna write this down right now so i've i've interviewed paul in the past i Gotta remember to do this again. Let me just write this down. It's gonna put Centauri Dreams up. There. All right. That's just a reminder to me to uh, to invite Paul because I'm sure he'll be up for it. And Paul is great. You know, if you if you like Isaac Arthur's stuff and you like my stuff, if you sort of trace us back, Paul is sort of at the uh, you know he's the connection. He does this great website called Centauri Dreams, and he is constantly talking about all the stuff that I'm sure you love, like probes to alpha. You know, his focus is like practical exploration to nearby stars. Like, what is the latest technology? And so it's not super science fiction. It's like, what are people working on today? And I highly recommend his website. So it's Centauri Dreams. Joe Scott? Yeah, yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, hey, if anyone wants to bring... Uh, Neil deGrasse invite Neil deGrasse Tyson to come and hang out with me. Uh, that would be awesome. He's a he's a busy busy guy. And same with uh, Dr. Brian Cox. Busy people. You know, maybe I could get Phil Plate to come and hang out with me for for an hour. But apart from that, uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be tough. All right. So um, Martin Schumann. Hey Fraser, any tips to get started with astrophotography? I totally do. Um, so there's a couple of things here now. Like if you get a telescope, I got a telescope back there. Um, if you want to get into like taking pictures of the night sky, uh, you know, I recommend that you start with a DSLR camera, like start with like a, you know, even like an old Canon EOS or a T3i and go out and just set up a tripod and take some long duration views of the night sky you know so set your your camera take a you know depends on what lens you've got but you and you know try and get stuff like the milky way and things like that and if you're enjoying that and you're kind of hooked then there's lots of stuff that you can go after that so um highly recommend that you uh you know start there and you know because the milky way is a tough enough challenge especially when you're dealing with light pollution and things like that so uh, all right, so, hey, cool, Nancy, have you taken over Nightbot? That's awesome. Oh, my God, that is so awesome. All right, so Nancy Graziano is, like, the producer of the Weekly Space Hangout and sort of one of the core members of the Weekly Space Hangout crew. I didn't even know that we could do this with Nightbot, and now she has, like, hacked it. So, um... Uh, Nancy's the person who invites a lot of the guests to the weekly space hangout and is just absolutely one of my uh, one of my favorite people. So Nancy, uh, so glad you were able to show up and thanks for all of your help. Uh, Nuno Fernandez, any more advancements in the mid mass home research? 
<laughs> I haven't heard anything uh, about what you're talking about is intermediate mass black holes. And these are sort of these these theorized black holes are going to be sort of in between the stellar mass black holes and the supermassive black holes. And they are thought to be, you know, out there somewhere, but they haven't been detected directly. And right now, the only evidence for them is, well, the, I mean, right now, the merging black holes that have been seen with the gravitational waves, those have been seen, but they're still more on the stellar mass side. And the only evidence for, for intermediate mass black holes, like ones in the thousands of times the mass of the sun, is in globular clusters. And with them, it's only, you know, really sort of indirect. Like they're seeing how the stars are moving around inside the cluster and using that to infer that there could be some intermediate mass black holes there. But so far, uh, none have, have directly been detected. Uh, that said, there's some really new interesting stuff uh, in the even just in the last couple of, of weeks, astronomers discovered a bunch of like, thousands of black holes uh, are probably orbiting around the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. And so it makes sense that those black holes could be merging and mashing and, and increasing in mass. And maybe that's another way that you could get an intermediate mass black hole. But so far, none have been uh, none have been actually found. Uh, Tyler Hamlin, would you be able to help me find stars via coordinates, right ascension, and so on? Uh, well, so anytime I want to do that, right? Like, like when I use a telescope, I want it to have a go-to mount, and so you can just use a little controller. You can type in the object that you want to look for, and and go from there. Um, there's an open standard that you can use to connect telescopes with all kinds of different software. Oh man, I forget the the name of the of the standard. Because all of these they will let you just sort of type in the object and then it will translate to the right ascension, the declination and it'll send that information to the mount and the mount will turn in the direction of the of the target. So that's the way that I've, you know, I don't I can't, if you told me, give me a right ascension and declination number, I wouldn't be able to find it directly. So that's what I, that's what I tend to do. But pretty cool. Uh, Stellarium uh, will, you know, you can use the, the program Stellarium, which is free. I highly recommend it. And you can, you know, use that to actually control your telescope if you've got the right, if you've got the right setup. <laughs> Maple Flavor says the go-to is cheating. No way. Not at all. It is so not cheating. So a lot of people want to know like what telescope I should get first. And a lot of people are entranced by this idea of the big light buckets, right? The Dobsonian telescopes, the ones with like an eight inch or a 10 inch telescope. And that's great for a few nights. Like you can go out and you can see, you know, Jupiter and the moon. And if you've got, you know, you can see Saturn and that's all pretty amazing. But beyond that, you know, some clusters, I find that you want to see stuff in kind of longer duration. That's why you want to push more into the astrophotography side. And for me, I'm lazy. I want, I want to have my telescope just find its way to the object. But I do think it's super important to learn your, your constellations first. And uh, so we're going to be doing, we're going to be bringing back the virtual star party. And we're going to talk a lot about what objects are out there in the night sky and 
and where to find them and what objects are up there right now. Like, for example, tonight, um, if you've noticed that really bright star off to the west, that's Venus. And if you've noticed the really bright star off to the east, that's Jupiter. And if you take a, you know, a pair of binoculars or a small telescope, if you look at at Venus, you can see how it looks like a crescent moon. And if you look at uh, Jupiter, you can see the bands across the pan the planet and the and the four bright Jovian moons. And at the same time, um, Mars rises about midnight, one in the morning. Saturn does the same. So uh, yeah, it's it's kind of an amazing time right now. With the next couple of months, it's going to be the perfect time to be watching the night sky and looking at the planets, uh, especially Mars. Like Mars is going to be doing its uh, closest approach since remember that crazy time back in like 2003 where everyone said that Mars was going to be as close as the full moon. Of course it wasn't, but that's what they were saying. So Mars is going to be essentially that bright. It's going to be one of the brightest objects in the sky. You can't miss it. It's going to be bright red in the evening sky uh, in July. So check that out. Uh, there was a question here. Okay, so John Michael Godier brings up any thoughts on the new interstellar asteroid from today. So for anyone who didn't know, didn't see this, and we're, we're, still, we're still reporting on this, um, is that a new interstellar asteroid was discovered orbiting essentially the same orbit as Jupiter, but it's in a retrograde orbit, which means that it's going backwards from the rest of the planets in the solar system, which is super weird and would require some kind of, you know, extreme capture to be able to do that. And so they're in the process of determining that it came from another star. And the, so the thing with Oumuamua, the the interstellar asteroid that we saw a couple of, of months ago was that it was on this really crazy trajectory. It's possible to sort of spool up a mission, launch it on a Falcon Heavy, catch up with Oumuamua and send a probe to the surface, but really, really hard. And it would take, at this point, probably about a decade to actually get there, even if you launched in the next couple of, of weeks. Um, but with this one, it's not going anywhere, right? So you could just send a probe out there, match orbit, land, and study it. And we would see an asteroid from another star system. And that would answer a million questions, right? Like, is the solar system normal? What kinds of elements do we find, you know, what we find here in the solar system would be different from what we find in this other star system. Maybe there would even be organic elements on the asteroid. So, you know, we're just just discovered this and it's just been announced in the last like it was announced what yesterday today uh huge news so i'm you know I, I'm, I'm probably going to sort of drop everything and uh and do a video on this because it's it's gigantic uh uh emily calendrelli would be great um yeah lots of good lots of good names um all right, Grant Lanning wants to know, is there a plan for a new space station after the ISS ends in 2024? So right now, uh, I don't know if you've heard, so the, the Americans are sort of saber-rattling that they're going to pull out their support of the International Space Station probably around 2024. And the irony is that the Russians had been the ones who'd been saying that they were going to pull out of the International Space Station, and then the Americans 
sort of diplomatically negotiated them to come back to the table and continue to support it to 2028. And then the administration's changed and the new administration is looking to kind of pull the money out of the space station. And it's, you know, it's a couple of billion dollars, a billion and a half dollars a year. I forget the total amount, but it's, it's sort of a pretty significant budget. The plan for the next thing is called the Deep Space Gateway. And this is going to be this, this, um, uh, space station that's going to be in this strange orbit that goes around the moon and it's going to be it's going to serve as sort of a stepping off point to the deeper solar system but the problem is is that the budget that's being spent on the deep space gateway or sorry the budget that's being spent on the international space station is going to take away from the budget that's being spent on the deep space gateway so it's going to be really tough for people to to sort of fund both and you can you've got a guarantee that the budget is going to expand it's going to cost more than you expect and so uh, i can understand why if if the administration is serious about funding this sort of you know having humans go back to the moon then it makes sense for them to to defund the international space station and start funding the deep space gateway my guess is that you know even though it's whatever a billion dollars a year uh, it's good. They're going to keep funding the International Space Station as long as they can. The Deep Space Gateway is probably not going to survive changes in administration. Um, and please look at my video about capabilities driven exploration at some point because uh, it's the back and forth, right? You know, we're going to go to the asteroids, we're going to go to Mars, we're going to go to the moon, then we're going to go to the asteroids, Mars, moon, you know. So we'll see what happens. Um, Aaron Theo says, should we draw or write what we can see when observing the sky? I, so what you're talking about um, is doing astronomical illustrations. And there's a ton of value to doing that To You know, the what what you can see with your eye, the kinds of features and fainter things you can see, it's a really valuable process to do that. And great practice to sketch things that you see. I used to do that as a kid, <laughs> such an astronomy nerd. Um, but but then also I think you know doing astrophotography as well. So the great thing about observing with the eye is you just sort of you know you don't have to worry about whether you got the picture or not and the long exposure. So both are really valuable. If you enjoy doing that, you should totally do it. There's some great um, astronomical illustrations that I shared in the newsletter a few months back from like the 1800s, and they're they're beautiful. And I think they're in like various art galleries. And so I think it's I think it's still sort of a lost art. We actually um, in the new astronomy book that we're working on, we actually talk about how valuable and, you know, how much fun doing uh, your own illustrations are of the night sky. So totally do it. I love it. Send me a picture. I want to see the I want to see the, the illustrations that you've done. Mikhail Thunderberg says cylinder cylinder habitats. Why can't we do this now? Um, so I, like, all right. So if you hang out with me, I'm going to be Dr. Buzz Killington, right? Like you're going to get the sense of this. You got Isaac Arthur, John Michael Godier. They're going to sort of send your imagination into the future. And I am going to ruin science fiction Christmas. And that's just sort of the place I've found myself at. And I, so I did this episode about artificial gravity and this idea of, you know, why don't we go and build some kind of orbital 
facility that we can create artificial gravity. And the problem is that it would take hundreds of launches, thousands of launches of the BFR just to build the thing. Right. And so the question is like, why do we want a rotating habitat? Is it so we don't, you know, our bones don't soften and, you know, we get pressure issues and our, and you know, issues with our vision. Like there's definitely, um, health problems with living in space, but it also seems that, that human beings can handle being in fairly, you know, you can be in a fairly small centrifuge. That's just a couple of meters across the kind of thing that can fit in a dragon capsule. Like it could be built and launched today. Well, not today, you know, in a couple of years, and it could be installed to the international space station or to the deep space gateway, or just on its own standalone space station. And that astronauts could, could mitigate a lot of the problems of artificial gravity. Now, obviously we want to go to that next step and have, gigantic O'Neill cylinders hovering at L4 and L5. But, you know, let's just take that tiny little step first. Like right now, the state of the art is the International Space Station floating around in the, you know, in space around and around and around. And so, you know, my focus is always let's just take one more step. Just one little extra step is all I'm saying. So um, so A.V. Scott and Flower saying humans atrophy without 1G gravity. Um, well, so here's the thing, right? Like what it appears now is that there are, I forget the number, there's like 11 bad things that happen to the human body. Your muscles atrophy, your bones soften. Uh, there's a, I forget all of them. And there are some that with exercise, you can essentially minimize or even reduce them entirely. Now you're exercising all day long, right? Astronauts have to exercise for a tremendous amount of their day. But then there's a couple of things that that no amount of exercise is going to do you get this fluid redistribution, you have problems with your balance, although it doesn't really matter while you're in space. And there's problems with your eyeballs, where the sort of fluid pressure changes in your eyes, and it, it can cause problems with your vision. So those you do need some kind of gravity, but it could very well be that you only need like an hour in a centrifuge to overcome that. So this is the next big question that I think NASA needs to solve or somebody is with some kind of small centrifuge, can you avoid some of those down long term sides of of gravity of lack of gravity. And so that's where I think, you know, we need to have these tiny steps forward. But again, you know, this is just my opinion. So um, and then John Michael Godier will, uh, you know, talk about the the L4, L5 O'Neill cylinders. Sean Champagne is wondering how timekeeping works on Mars. How would the future colonists handle time between their home planet and Earth? Ever heard of the Darien calendar? I haven't heard of the Darien calendar, but, you know, on Mars, a day is like 24 hours, 24 and a half hours. So it's a little longer than it is on Earth, which is kind of amazing, right? When you think about the time, you know, that Earth and Mars happen to have orbits or rotation rates that are that close to each other. And for here, when um, people are working on spacecraft, they actually start keeping Mars time. So they because that's the time when the rovers are 
you know, sort of there's a set amount of time that the rover is sort of in view and there's ways that you can, can communicate with it. And so the, the folks on Earth change their schedule and they're slowly shift every day. They work a little later and they come home a little later and they're shift around the clock that and then once things became pretty routine, then they just changed to running on Earth time anyway. And then sometimes, you know, people would have a shift that was at, that was at night. So uh, you can imagine, you know, when you're living on the surface of Mars, you're going to acclimate to that longer time. I do wonder, though, if we will ever acclimate, you know, we evolved for a 24 hour day, what will a 24 hour and a half day do to us? We don't know right? We just don't know. And we got to find out. So these are the kinds of things. I mean, we do know that shift work here on Earth is super bad for your health. So it would be interesting to see what happens when people go to Mars and and try out that experiment. How will we keep time? I mean, they're going to have, I would guess that we will eventually move towards some kind of universal solar system time that's independent of time zones on Earth. You know, we already have universal time. We should just use it, which we don't. Daniel Wall, how was hydrogen made with all the hydrogen in the universe from the beginning? So all of the hydrogen was made in the first few moments after the Big Bang. When the Big Bang was like right at the very beginning, the universe was hot and dense. And, you know, then the sort of as it cooled down a little bit, all of the forces came into play. And as it cooled down more than that, potentially protons were created and protons are hydrogen. And the amazing part is that for a while, I forget the exact time, it's thousands of years, no, it's minutes, for a few minutes, the entire universe was the core of a star, essentially one big star. And so it had fusion in its core, turning hydrogen into helium. And then the Big Bang got to a point that the universe had cooled off that this fusion would no longer happen. But that amount of hydrogen and helium, that ratio and a little bit of lithium and other heavier elements was left over into the universe. And so when we look out into the universe, and we see three quarters hydrogen and one quarter helium, that's left over from that that time when the entire universe was acting like a star. And it's an amazing idea. So um, let's move on. Let's see. There you go. So David Reddick is saying that I've read that humans actually have a 25 hour circadian rhythm, and our clocks get reset each day by the sun. Mars should be no problem once you live. I think that sounds great. Let's find out again, right? Like all of these things that people say, here's what I think, right? I think, you know, some people are saying, well, I think we can have, we can handle the gravity of Mars, the 30% gravity of Mars. Let's find out. I think, you know, people say, well, we, I think we can have, handle the gravity of the 15% gravity of the moon. Let's find out. Oh, the Mars dust isn't that dangerous. Let's find out. So all of these things, each one of these little questions, I think needs to be answered needs someone needs to look into them and find out. Vesa Taminen Fraser's the black hole image already released that they're trying to get from Sagittarius a man every week. I wish it's not yet. So the um, the, of course, we're talking about the event horizon telescope. And about a year ago now, all of the radio telescopes on the entire planet, including ones in Antarctica and ones in space, gathered together and took one big image of 
the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way, and then all the material was going to be gathered together. And uh, they're waiting and they're doing the data processing on all of this, all of these data that were captured, and we're still waiting for that first image. It's got to be soon. Anthony, say lava. There you go. Lava, pasta, llama. You like that? <laughs> Welcome to the West Coast of Canada. <laughs> there, I did. I said pasta, lava, and llama. It's funny. Someone was like, no, no, it's you say lava like you say llama. No problem. Done. There you go. Uh, Avi's gotten flower. Have you played Surviving Mars? I have not. Uh, just, just, I just don't have much time for games. Uh, what am I playing right now? I'm playing uh, Stellaris, which I always get confused. Stellaris and Stellarium. One is the, uh, the the software for running your own planetarium, which I highly recommend, and the other is a is a 4x uh, space colonizing game. Um, what's I just got a new game? What is it called? Uh, let's see if it pops up. It's called Star Traders Frontiers, and I started playing that, and it's super fun. I'm just getting into it. I've got Slay the Spire, which I've played a ton of, and I really like it. And I can't wait for them to sort of come up with more, uh, more to that game. And what's the other big game? Oh, and I just got BattleTech, which I've been playing. So, you want me to say God of War? There you go. Am I mispronouncing that with my outrageous Canadian accent? No. All right. Now they're just getting me to say things. Is that what's happening? <laughs> Um, Krishnot, Dark Matter, when do you think we're going to have the first detection? If you want to speculate, what do you think it will be like? A new particle, new physics, something in a new configuration? All right, so we are beyond my pay grade, right? Remember, I'm a science journalist, not a physicist. But what do you think dark matter is, is the question I like to ask every single um, physicist who, who crosses my path, especially the ones who are into, um, into dark matter. And the consensus at this point is that it's probably some kind of particle and that particle doesn't interact with itself or with regular matter and it doesn't seem to have some kind of cross-section and that's when we don't know what it is and it has gravity. So that's what it is. That's what they think it is. And there's enough evidence to say that that's what it is. But to know what it is more than that, we don't know. And I think, you know, sometimes we just say, uh, it's okay to just say, I don't know, right? Let's find out. Let's, we don't know what this thing is. Let's just find out. And that is, and, and I feel like, and it, you know, when people are like, oh, I don't, I don't like dark matter. I don't know why physicists invented this thing to explain the universe or whatever, but they, they didn't, right? They just... Galaxies are rotating strangely. There's all of this other evidence that there's that there's mass out there that they don't know what it is, and they're trying to figure it out, right? And that's and that's as far as we've gotten. Uh, okay, anonymous freak says we'll know if you're real Canadian if you say sorry, and we'll know which side of Canada based on how you say it. There you go. How'd you like that? Sorry. Wait, how do I say it? Sorry. sorry? Okay. Yeah, my wife is American, so she thinks it's hilarious the way I talk. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Atlantic Coast says sorry more than Pacific Coast. Uh, and Steve McGinnis is saying that Canadians pronounce the same as English. 
Z is Z, not Z. That is that is true, which is pretty weird as we say things. Uh, what was a weird one? I mean, obviously, when we say, um, yeah, anyway, it, it sort of throws my wife off again whenever I say Z sometimes. Um, Marco Parigi, would it be easier to have a colony inside a comet than on Mars? That's a really great question. Um, I do, I do like that question. I don't know whether a comet is the right machine for having a colony or whether it's an asteroid, both of which you would probably, you know, they have resources that you can use. There's the other one that she likes. <laughs> That's the one that cracks her up when I say resources, because apparently Americans say resources. And, and again, my wife says, we don't have sources. You know, you don't have sources. You have sources. Anyway, so there's resources, right? So on a comet, you've got water, which is really valuable. You can turn water into air and fuel and water for drinking. And and so it's one of the most valuable uh, materials that you can get your hands on. So to put down a colony on a comet makes a ton of sense, you know, especially because they're actually dirty snowballs mixed in with other um, substances like you know there's gonna be rock and organics and all kinds of stuff on comets so they make a ton of sense asteroids you know you've got rock potentially water under the surface again a great place to go in fact sort of the what is an asteroid and what is a comet is all starting to blur at this point it's just what's its distance from the sun will define how much volatiles it's got on it so <clears throat> i i think both of those are great I personally think that it makes more sense to try and go to some of these worlds than to uh, go to Mars, personally, you know, going like Mars is great. And Mars is really interesting and it has a lot of of scientific questions that we need to look into. But but beyond that, right, like, yeah, you've got dirt, right? But you've got a gravity well and you've got very low gravity. Like, let's build some centrifuges, live in space. Uh, George Lancaster is asking, um, first, thanks for the donation, uh, special relativity faster than light signals, causality, special relativity. Can you look into or explain it? So I've got an interview with Dr. Ethan Siegel coming up, who is the, um, uh, he's, you know, I've, I've interviewed him in the past. He's a good friend. He was on the weekly space hangout a couple of weeks ago, and we did an episode about, um, sort of the nature of space time. What is it? And also, when do I get my warp drive? And Ethan just did a book all about the science of Star Trek. And, you know, I was expecting him to be even more cynical about faster than light travel. But he said that, you know, if you can get, I'm paraphrasing, the episode comes out in just a couple of days. Um, but if you can get your hands on negative mass, then a warp drive actually makes sense. And in fact, it wouldn't be anything like Star Trek. Like, you would be able to travel for vast distances instantaneously the problem is that you need this thing called negative mass and right now according to the laws of physics that this does not exist but one of the sort of possible features of antimatter is that it has um, negative gravity and so right now because antimatter is so hard to make and and manage Right now, physicists don't know if that if you drop, say you create an, an anti-hydrogen and you let go of it, they don't know whether it falls down from the force of gravity or it falls up because it's being 
um, because it has anti-gravity. And if it's anti-gravity, negative mass, then you're, you're ready to go and build yourself a warp drive. So uh, that's awesome. So that episode is coming out in just a, just a couple of days, and we'll be talking about that. And, you know, I, it's definitely a long shot, but, but Ethan doesn't remove all hope which is great because normally Ethan does normally actually Ethan is great because he's one of the people who is a, you know, scientist, but he's, but he's willing to speculate and willing to, to help you have a little hope for sci-fi Christmas, especially Star Trek technology. The Roblox gamer. Hey, I have a question. What if the sun blinked out for a year? Do you mean like the sun turned into a black hole or the sun just disappeared? The sun disappeared then all of the planets in the solar system would just keep going on in a straight line from wherever they were after eight minutes, after the gravity moved out from the sun. And But if the sun just turned into a black hole, then all of the planets would just continue orbiting around the the sun where it is, uh, the, the black hole version of the sun. So you have to be, you have to specify, but I hope that answered both of them. Alex, when is James Webb scheduled to launch? I mean, I don't know anymore. I, I can't even think about it. Uh, I think it's supposed to launch in 2019, but in the last shake test, they found a bunch of washers and screws on the ground underneath it. So that's not good. And, so, you know, someone described it's like when you, you know, when you put together um, uh, IKEA furniture and you have all these leftover parts and you're not really sure whether those were important for the IKEA furniture. So. Uh, is that going to push it past? It's definitely going to increase the price. Is that going to push it past 2020, 2021? I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, this is sort of, we're into the sunk cost fallacy territory. We can never turn back. Uh, the James Webb has got to launch. And I actually looked at a paper today that was really interesting, and it's talking about the scientific capabilities of the James Webb Space Telescope. And I think I'd like to report on that or do a do an episode on. I get too many ideas. I want to do I want to do episodes on, but um, it, you know, sort of talk about the capabilities. And it's really important to understand how powerful the James Webb is. You know, it's a ten billion dollar space telescope when all is said and done. The size of the mirror, it's, it's seven Hubble Space Telescopes all bolted together into one big mirror. It is, it's outrageous. It's going to be able to directly look at the first stars forming after the Big Bang. Uh, it's going to be able to see the atmospheres of other worlds. Like, we really need this spacecraft. We need this telescope. So I, I, we just got to just keep going. And, and the thing is, is like there are multiple complicated brand new technologies that engineers developed to build this thing. And it's not surprising that that they ran into challenges as they were building it. That's how it works. <laughs> Hiptacular Raptor. What is the difference between Ikea and a globular cluster or a gobular cluster? Uh, Robert Woko is noting it's going to be a Falcon 9 tomorrow at 1230. I don't think that's going to be a Block 5, though, right? That's going to be another Block 4. That's cool. I love the Block 5 launch. I hope you all got a chance to watch it. Uh, Stuniverse, just of interest, would the James Webb Space Telescope be able to directly view Proxima B? Like the planet around Proxima B? I don't know. I that's th These are the kinds of questions that I want to I want to find out. So I'm going to probably do an episode 
just like exactly what will they be able to see with the James Webb Space Telescope. And I'll try and find some, some you know, just sort of answer this once and for all. Chip Cinco, why don't we have any more deep space web images from Hubble to engance and look at? Uh, the, J the sorry, the Hubble Space Telescope is still up and taking pictures all the time, and there are tons of great images. There was a beautiful photograph that came from the Hubble Space Telescope uh, just just today, yesterday, of this great galaxy seen edge on. So uh, there's new pictures coming out of it all the time. Hubble is in constant use and you can actually go and download and look at all of the places the Hubble Space Telescope is looking at all the time you can download tons of the data yourself and you can even process it and make your own images from it <laughs> Nuno Fernandez how can we save the expanse oh I don't know uh, go to save the expanse.org there's a change.org thing you can sign uh, it feels to me like the expanse is going to get saved. Like it sounds like the deal that the production company had signed with, um, with sci-fi sci-fi wasn't happy with it. And because it just didn't give them enough of the downstream revenue and rights. And so the people who created it smartly hung on to the rights, which I think is great. And it looks like, um, uh, who was it? Netflix passed. And so then you're left with a couple of other options, Hulu and Amazon, obviously. I think Amazon has the back is, is showing older seasons of the expanse. So it makes sense that they would be the ones that would that would pick it up. I, if, if someone's got to pick it up, right? Come on. It's got to happen. John Michael Godier, Fraser, do you think it would be possible to service the Hubble Space Telescope more now that SpaceX is dropping launch costs so much? Man, that's a great, great question. So the so the problem with servicing the Hubble Space Telescope is that it takes human beings to do it. It is, you know, when the Hubble Space Telescope Hubble Space Telescope was always designed to be serviced by the crew of the space shuttle. It fits, it fit perfectly into the space shuttle. No, Ghost World is saying the expanse is saved. That's awesome. So uh, it was designed to fit inside the the back of the of the space shuttle. In fact, originally they said that they would sort of bring Hubble back down to Earth, fix it, upgrade it, and then they would fly it again on the space shuttle. Now that the space shuttle isn't flying anymore, really there's no there's no vehicle that can take you to up to space where astronauts can work on anything is just taking astronauts up to the International Space Station. And that's it. So if the dragon and so we're at the, we're at the point now where maybe we're going to see dragon capsules fly within the next couple of years, they're going to go to the International Space Station. Maybe SpaceX could make a version of the dragon where astronauts could do some kind of EVA. And that might be a really good experiment for what's going to happen in the future. But you could also imagine, right, they fly the BFR by 2024 and they just gobble up the Hubble Space Telescope, bring it back to Earth, fix it, send it back up. So, uh, you know, once the BFR flies, what is possible is utterly different. I mean, I did the math. The, the cost per kilogram on the BFR starts to rival what you could get with, with launch loops and and space elevators. It's ridiculously inexpensive to fly things 
on the BFR if the if the reality comes to fruition. So we'll see what happens. Do you promise that the expanse has been officially saved? Oh, deal's going well. All right. Uh, Crush Not says, Elon gives you a free Falcon Heavy launch. You choose the mission. Don't worry about costs. Elon's got you. Where do you go and what do you send? Oh, that's such a great question. You're Enceladus. I choose the uh, some kind of orbiter to go around Enceladus to take a really good look at the plumes and the geysers that are flying out of Enceladus. I think that's the thing I want. So make that happen, Elon, please. Uh, Peyton Long, speaking of telescopes, what model of telescope is the one behind you? How strong is it? Uh, it is a 70 millimeter stellar view uh, apochromatic refractor. And it was actually provided to me by um, Oceanside Photo and Telescope and they're the ones who are going to be helping bring the virtual star parties back. 70 millimeter, it's nice. It's a really nice telescope. I've got a very big um, uh, eyepiece on it, so so it's a really wide field of view. So like it doesn't, you can't look at things like even Jupiter. You can just barely see the moons on Jupiter, even though the telescope is very powerful. But it gives you this really beautiful wide field of view for seeing. Uh, star clusters and the Milky Way and things like that. So, yeah, um, Grant Landing says that's a perfect interview question for all guests. It's true. I well, I used to. I used to used to say sort of same kind of thing, right? Blank check. What would you like? What what could we do? And people would um, would tell me what kind of missions that they would like to be able to fund. Oh, Cody's lab. Hey, Cody. Yeah, good choice. I think in Europa, but Enceladus is probably just as awesome. Yeah, uh, Europa's great, but the radiation environment around Europa is so nasty that I think I would rather have something out at Enceladus. And you can study Saturn some more, right? I mean, the sadness of of this is that right now there is no spacecraft at Saturn. We're all so used to Cassini being at Saturn for the last um you know since 2003 and right now there is no spacecraft at saturn which is just a tragedy lawrence joseph have you played space engine yet yeah i have i've got it on this computer right now i like it um it's pretty cool uh if you go to skylius she often over on twitch she often runs it and sort of uses it a way to look around at the night sky so you should totally check it out <laughs> Paranormal 001. We deserve better trolls. Oh, that that will summon them. You'll get them. Campbell Argyle. Why is the radiation nasty around Europa? The radiation is nasty just around Jupiter. So Jupiter, like Earth, has what this thing called trapped radiation. So it gets radiation that comes from the sun that gets trapped in the magnetic field that's around the planet and just sort of buzzes around and around and around. And so, but on Jupiter, the magnetic field is so much more powerful. And so if you were, uh, you know, any spacecraft there, you know, if you were on the surface of, say, Europa or Io, <clears throat> you'd be 
killed with radiation momentarily. But even just like a spacecraft would be fried by this radiation in a very short time. The whole Europa Clipper mission is designed for the spacecraft to come in really quickly, do a quick orbit of Europa, and then back out into deep space before the radiation can do any damage to it over any long period of time. So it's really bad there. Um, it's generally the big concern for the kind of robotic missions. And it also, I mean, it's going to put a big problem to any future human missions that may go to anywhere near the Jovian system is, you know, for all of the worlds that we want to see, it's going to be really bad. The radiation environment is just going to be terrible. So that's why I kind of like the idea of going to, um, to Saturn instead. Uh, Astro B, do you have dark skies there on Vancouver Island? I do. Uh, I can see the Milky Way from my backyard, which is great. Um, and then with a sort of 10-minute drive, I can get to really nice dark skies. And then with like a half-hour drive, I can be at perfect black skies, which is great. Uh, we've got this great beach that we can go to that has a view to the north. So whenever there's aurora warnings, we go out to uh, go out there and just sort of set up with our lawn chairs and wait for the uh, the show to, to appear. Uh, that's how I, the, on my channel I posted some auroras that I saw about six months ago, and it was just it was stunning. So, yeah, no, it's good. It's a great place. But for a lot of people, even if they live in fairly, um, you know, light-polluted skies, you don't have to go very far. You should be able to reach reasonably dark skies within a couple of hours to be able to see the Milky Way, and especially this summer. Um, you know, there's the Perseid meteor shower, there's Mars is going to be up, Saturn is going to be up, Jupiter is going to be up, you know, go out and see some of the night sky. Uh, Ren in Brazil, any news about Proxima B? No, but the star sucks. We know that, that, uh, Proxima is a flare star and blasts out radiation on a regular basis that would kill life on earth. So it's probably not a great place to go. Uh, what did Cody say? <laughs> Cody's like, could we temporarily clear out the radiation with a bomb or something? Man, I, I, you could. If anybody could, you'd be the guy to do it, Cody. Uh, but um, there's, I did an episode <clears throat> a couple of weeks back about the Van Allen belts here in on the Earth. And one of the things is that there's this idea of these, this ultra-low frequency um, radiation can cause some kind of distortion in the Van Allen belt. So maybe there's a way to do that. <coughs> uh, Edward Hinden, can the ice of Jupiter's moons protect possible life from radiation? Yeah. If you get within about a meter of the surface, then you've got uh, as much... You've got like a millionth the radiation. So yeah, you're totally protected. <coughs> Ooh, voice is starting to go. Um, any more questions? Farney McGee, if there were private space stations, who's going to control all the debris in orbit? It'd be a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, when you think about where we're going with SpaceX launching... 5,000 satellites, and, and that's just one of many different um, groups sending up satellites. Space is going to get very, very congested very soon, and it would be, it would suck to be on a, you know, a space station if we had some kind of Kessler syndrome where all of the space debris turned into this just shrieking 
shield of metal around the earth. That would suck. Todd Larson, Fraser, is it possible to send many modern cameras on small satellites to go orbit every planet and moon and stay in orbit so we can look at whatever planet, moon, whatever we want? Uh, yes. Um, NASA, for the first time, just sent two CubeSats to Mars with the InSight spacecraft. So we're getting to the point now where they're going to be CubeSats going to other worlds. And so you could theoretically fire off CubeSats to every single asteroid, planet, moon, whatever you want. The problem is those CubeSats aren't big enough and don't have enough power to, to, to send any communications. But you could kind of imagine this future infrastructure where you've got, um, you know, probes and spacecraft that are, that are sending um, communications back and forth for each other. And then you could imagine that. Now I did a, uh, an episode about electric sales. And one mission idea that they had for this was that they would send these electric sales spacecraft, send out like 50 of them, and they would all go out to the asteroid belt, and they would all find targets, and they would explore them. And then they would all arrive back a couple of years later, and we would then download all the information from them. So that's, that's one of the big challenges to just get a signal back when you think about uh, the Galileo spacecraft. Um, you know, the Galileo spacecraft, for example, it mostly failed, because they couldn't get its, its antenna opened up enough. And so they, they had they were only able to send back a fraction of the data that they were originally anticipating. So it's that distance and communication is one of the greatest challenges. But I can imagine as we get more and more spacecraft out there, and they start communicating for each other, if we build this infrastructure, suddenly, we're going to be able to send smaller spacecraft with smaller instrument packages, I would, <clears throat> I would seriously consider that as a sort of a way to move forward in the in the future. Terry Weaver, don't ask him about UFOs. His government handles will hurt him for talking. <laughs> I, I can't wait to find any evidence of, of alien activity. <laughs> um, Chip Synthco, what is the job of the CubeSat if they can't communicate? Well, this is the thing. They're going to Mars, and there are a ton of spacecraft already at Mars. And so all those other spacecraft can do the communications for them. They can communicate to, say... Um, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, or the Mars Odyssey, or the Europeans um, Mars Orbiter, and then they will relay the data back. And so you can imagine there being uh, similar setups in other worlds, send a big communications dish, and then just send CubeSats from that point on. <laughs> oh, hey, I should get Scott Manley to show up. Slow O said, wow, Cody and JMG are here. I guess we're just missing Scott Manley. All right, I will talk to Scott Manley as well. I got to remember all of these names that people throw at me while I'm doing these, these live streams. Five more minutes. Oh. Um, let's see, any more questions? R. Jones says, would aliens be able to detect us if we start using the Breakthrough Starshot? Uh, good question. One of the ideas that people have had is is detecting aliens by their essentially their methods of communicating and sending spacecraft with lasers. And in fact, one of the explanations for fast radio bursts is that what you're seeing is these 
spacecraft shooting a laser to accelerate away. And so maybe in the far, far future, as we start to develop laser systems capable of, of sending spacecraft, you, they could actually detect us because a laser is, you know, it's very pinpoint as opposed to a radio transmission that, that goes out in, in all three dimensions. Uh, Emily Lakdawalla, Scott, Scott Manley, who I've had, um, and Emily Lakdawalla, who, who, who has been on the weekly space hangout. She hasn't been doing this with, with me yet, but, but I don't know of Claudio McCone. That sounds great. All right. Email me after your, your guest suggestions. That sounds great. Yeah, Emily just wrote. I've got it right here. The design and engineering of Curiosity, how the Mars rover performs its job. <laughs> Larry Beckham, any news on the microbes growing on the outside of the ISS? No news of that. So um, you should, uh, the, Last we heard of this, I think it was the Russians had said that they had found some microbes growing on the outside of the ISS and right away jumped to the conclusion that, you know, maybe it had come from space. But I haven't heard any legitimate confirmations about that. So, um, uh, Marco, you should talk to Nancy Graziano, who is uh, right here. Uh, ASL pulls. Hey, Fraser, could we survive in some kind of ship traveling at light speed? Is the human body ready for this? Well, so you could travel not at light speed, but you could travel at a, you know, 99% of the speed of light. And you would be fine. In fact, you wouldn't even notice anything. But the problem is that the rest of the universe is not traveling at that speed. And so you would be crashing through debris and gas particles and dust and things like that. And they would be like, like nuclear bombs going off on your spacecraft because the velocity is, is the difference of velocity is so high. So, so that's the, that's the problem. But in fact, if you were traveling this, you know, it's like when you travel in a car, right? You don't feel the, once you're traveling at 120 kilometers per hour down the highway, you don't feel the speed unless you slow down or you stop or you change direction. Um, Arctic warfare. Uh, what if the aliens are using neutrino based communication system instead of laser and radio? That's a great suggestion. It's entirely possible that the aliens will have figured out some other way of communicating than using radio waves or lasers or, or something like that. So the thought is that they would be communicating in radio waves for us really to do us a favor, you know, because there and that's a thing that we would probably do right we get to a certain level of technology and we know that st you know civilization starting out as they as their new technology they're going to use radio waves or light waves and so that's a way to that they're going to want to communicate and then later on um and so even though we may have advanced beyond it they're going to still stay backwards compatible to these other technologies um uh, Larry Beckham is saying that Russia tried a sample return from Phobos. Sadly, it failed. Yeah, as I mentioned in the past that, well, the Russians have not had a lot of success in going anywhere near Mars, but their Phobos mission, their Phobos grunt was going to go to, to Phobos, grab a uh, sample and bring it back. And the spacecraft failed to even get out of the orbit of Earth. All right. 
I think we've reached the end of the of the hour. Man, it goes by so fast. Thanks everyone for asking all of the questions. It's super fun. Uh, I will be back next week probably have another special guest, but, but definitely send me emails of guests that you think so that, because I'm not thinking of it right now, but just send me an email, my name at gmail.com, uh, which would be great. And then I will try to queue up a bunch of them like Paul Gilster at Centauri dreams. It's on my screen right now. All right. Thanks everybody. Uh, next episode coming up is my interview with Ethan Siegel about what is space time and uh, when can I have a warp drive? So we will see you uh, later on this week. And then a Weekly Space Hangout. We have an astronaut as our guest this week on the Weekly Space Hangout, I think. Anyway, uh, I, I let Nancy think of the schedule. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you all uh, next time.